Today we're with David Slater, who writes for the Pontiac Tribune and Fifth Column. David writes on security, current events, and police state. We're also with Adil Emig, a blogger who analyzes the Muslim subculture, who we had on previously. David, let's give the floor to you. Last week, when I spoke to you briefly, you were telling me about America's foreign policy and how it impacts Islam. Can you tell me more about that? Sure. So, uh, U.S. foreign policy in the, in the Middle East kind of manifests itself into this uh, uh, overt and covert military actions. Um, this is how it uh, how it produces um, results for what it sees as its sort of global sort of dominating uh, uh, foreign powers. So, so the the U.S. Um, uh, inflicts itself into different regions in the world, um, and it, it pulls. Um, influence and, and power into those regions. And so with the U.S., um, it relies mostly on uh, militarism to sort of achieve these goals. Um, it's, uh, it's never been, you know, strong. You know, diplomatically, it, it, it relies chiefly on sort of any sort of militarism that, that, it, can, uh, that, it, can, that it can use. Um, so uh, it kind of manifests itself this way in, like, invasions, occupations, um, support for players in regional conflicts and dictators. And this is sort of the, the overt military uh, action that it uses. Um, it, it, it'll, um, it'll get aid uh, through, um, through uh, military budgeting. Um, and this is sort of like the, you know, the you know, defense budgets and stuff like this have, have this sort of, like, a... Uh, Context within it that allows you know the military and uh, and the government to sort of carry these things out, and then they have covert uh, military actions, um, and they work with uh, allies in the Middle East uh, in this region to, de- to destabilize neighboring countries as well as uh, with traditional Western allies like Britain and France, and so all of these powers sort of uh, shape um, this, this this area right and. Um, and destabilize these countries to to pull uh, influence and and resources out of the region. So I have some history. Sorry, let me ask you a question real quick because the first picture that comes to mind is U.S. involvement in the Middle East, and a lot of people would say we're there as a response to increased terrorism. I mean, how do you how do you reconcile that view with what you're saying? Well, we've never really. That's never really been true. I mean, um, it, it's some of it's some of what we're uh, uh, it's the reasons as to why we're there. That's just what they say. Um, 9/11 um, was sort of the precursor uh, to this sort of narrative, right? But but we've been there for for you know uh, decades before that, and you know the end of the of the Second World War really saw sort of this changing landscape of of, of countries when decolonization happened, and, and sort of the the, the new fitting of like all of these emerging countries, right? So, so we start all. Can I add? Yeah, can I add one thing to that? Um, there's a book written. He's actually an anti anti communist and anti he's pro capitalist named uh, Eric Margulis. He's a he's a journalist. So on foreign policy, he's very left wing, and on other things, he's not. But he wrote a book called American Raj, and he basically pointed out that America essentially inherited. Uh, all the territory and control from the British Empire they dominated the rest of the world in the Middle East. So it kind of fits with what David was just saying right now. You know, keep going. That's all I was going to say. Yeah, I was going to say, can you give me like a couple of really concrete examples? Uh, let's say what people believe to be the narrative right now versus what the narrative really is. Well, um, so 
I'm not really sure exactly how to answer that, but um, um, so we're seeing we're, we're seeing these countries sort of like emerge onto their own sort of footing, you know, at the end of the Second World War, and um, and uh, power is being sort of taken away from um, you know uh, the imperial uh, the colonial powers like like Britain, right? So there needed to be this sort of like this uh, this new sort of strategy to sort of corral or to to keep hold of, of this sort of, uh, you know, power for resources and influence, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so the historical examples have always been that, that the influence and the power has already always been there, but it's like it's in the shape of, of, of how these, um, these Western powers work with these newly formed countries. Um, you know, what are they allowed to do, um, you know, and who rules um, and, and takes control of these countries? Uh, and one remember, of the first yeah. So keep going, keep going. Those things that remember the Arab Revolt, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what David is talking about is linked to things like that, where the Ottoman Empire was losing control of the Middle East. This is even before World War II, and kind of how Britain kind of then put a foothold in its power with a lot of Gulf states, and like the many Middle Arab tribes that were fighting during the, you know. So as, as the Ottoman Empire lost control of the region, right, kind of um, more, quote-unquote, Western colonial powers came in and took over. And after World War II, we saw the rise of American dominance, right? And America naturally took the reins from its allies. The allies were, essentially were like, um, I doubt the conversation sounded like this, but were like, hey, dude, we can't control this anymore. Maybe you can. You take the reins. And essentially, yeah. it's the same power dynamics. It's the same... It's the same goal. They share the same goals, Britain and the United States and France. So largely, they inherited, they basically took control uh, subtly from old British and French colonies. Sure. And, and you know? with Britain, with Britain, for example, um, since they had seen or foreshadowed sort of this, the, um, this sort of precipitating, and instead of um, having like major military defeats or or losing um, vast resources and, and access to those resources, they were able to pull themselves out of that and have the United States come in and sort of take those reins. And so Britain at the time is sort of face-saving uh, itself and its resources. And it's sort of like its, uh, you know, its, um, its structure and its, um, you know, its facilities and its, um, its sort of connections to industry and that sort of thing, right? So... So that sort of just like lays all of this groundwork for, you know, the last, you know, uh, number of decades that we sort of saw all of this like sort of imperialism um, within the Middle East, right, from Western powers. And so um, you have you have things that happened like uh, the, the CIA instituted coup in Iran where um, they're upending democracies and uh, sort of like this, these organic, uh, like people-led, uh, you know, uh, 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 uprisings and stuff to take back control from um, from sort of these global powers, right? And then we got the shots. Yeah, exactly. And so and so you see sort of like this. What what the U.S. has is this like sort of monopoly on militarism throughout the world, right? And and so you have all of these different um, exercises and uses of sort of um, covert uh, military power as well as overt military power, right? And so you have major invasions and occupations like what we saw after 9-11 with Iraq, but then we also have um, like sort of this like usage of, of covert power like, I mean, uh, the, the, the decades that preceded 9-11 
Saddam Hussein was this like you know revered um, um, sort of ally in the Middle East with with uh, with the U.S. Right, and mm-hmm. so, so it reminds me of an Arundhati Roy article that I recently read uh, titled "The NGOization of Resistance," and it adds to what you're saying. It would seem that in addition to military power, NGOs come in, and they come in as I believe, uh, if I can quote her here. Uh, they have become the arbitrators, the interpreters, and the facilitators of the discourse. They play out the role of, quote-unquote, the reasonable man in an unfair and unreasonable war. So that the theory being that before uh, uh, foreign power comes in and destabilizes the region at the same time or prior to that, they send in NGOs as a sort of softer way to wield power in the region and make the Yeah, I also want to – Pardon? And I, I actually want to add to that. Um, this is from Franz Fanon, right? He did some writing. He was a doctor during, I think, I believe he was a psychiatrist or a doctor during the Algerian Revolution. And he wrote a lot about, like, you know, post-colonial theory and things like that, right? And he says, and this is what I'm going to say is controversial, but, I mean, I'm hoping our next guest will actually talk about why we need feminism in the Muslim world. So, but, but I'm going to talk about kind of critiques feminism a bit, or rather how it was presented. Franz Fanon writes, now, he has his own personal gripes with feminism, but he writes that feminism in, by the French in, in Algeria um, was used often to uh, basically kind of cause, kind of give a cause for, like, well, we need to be here to civilize these people because look at how they treat the women, right? Mm-hmm. And they would, they would kind of use that narrative in there. They would have these, you know, people come in and say, oh, we've got to change the culture. They just don't know any better, right? It's mm-hmm. in the form of, like, of, of, it's in the form of, like, they want to help them, right? And, of course, I do think a lot of Middle Eastern countries do need feminism, so... I'm not saying they don't. What I'm saying is how it was manifested and how even something that, that, that left-wingers, like even post-colonial thinkers would support, like feminism, was, was actually used to kind of push some Western hegemony into, uh, into a lot of Muslim countries. Do you understand what I mean? Yeah, I completely agree with that. I mean, I experienced that myself working uh, recently in where that moral superiority is expressed. And it's not expressed through care, it's expressed through, uh, saying the illusion of care, or what I call the empathy self, in order to infiltrate that community, in order to use that community as a way to, uh, fundraise or to show relevance and impact when, in essence, there's absolutely no interest in that community. There's interest in dominating the the issues within that community uh, or, or impressing your values or values of the foreign sort of uh, power of the foreign group onto the community. A pause, pause, pause. Um, yeah. Space. Let's, let me wait a little second. Okay. Um, your voice was kind of fading out a little bit. Okay. I think uh, I got a missed call and so it kicked me off speaker. Okay. Okay. When did it, when did it start fading out? Like, like uh, actually, it, it would be in and out during your, uh, during what you're talking about your experiences. So let's pause, we'll give some space, and then, okay. do you want to say that again? Yes. Okay. One, <laughs> two, three. So I experienced this recently, the idea that, you know, what I call the empathy shell, that a community or a one dominant group does not actually give interest or, or genuine, uh, does not actually have genuine compassion for the group that they're trying to influence values in. Rather, that entity shell is used as a way to not only 
influence the values and normalize uh, Western sort of cultural values or familial values onto that community, but it's also used as a way to regulate that community and re uh, sort of, how can I say this without throwing people under the bus, used as a way to fundraise to continue to support the foreign influence. To say, oh, look yeah. what we're doing for this group. We've civilized them. We've we've normalized them. We've you know integrated into the community, but there is actually zero care for that community. Yeah. Okay, um, David, uh, do you want to continue? So that you've you've given the, the general. I've seen that you've given the general context that you've presented. Now, specifically, now in the modern day setting, how is how is American, British, French, and basically, you know, Western interests now intersecting with. Uh, different interests in the Middle East, and how is it affecting our conversations in Islam? Well, we could talk about the Islam part after, but how, what's happening right now on the ground uh, based on that historical context you just gave? Well, sure. Um, so, so fast forward to, to sort of where we're at now. Um, you have 9-11, you have all of these, um, you have all of this, uh, this militarism that's just exponentially increased since then. Um, you know, we, we this has always been sort of the the quid the sort of the the status quo of 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 how the U.S. operates, right? Um, and this is some of the stuff that Chomsky had talked about, where um, the United States goes into these countries and these different areas and, and just bullies himself in using militarism, right? Using this, this sort of the militarized thought. You, it's even like uh, the the diplomacy that they that they use is militarized, and so and so. Sort of some of the effects that we're starting to see now is like we're having the the rise of ISIS, we're having a, a, a massive uh, immigrant crisis where you know, we're talking about uh, millions of displaced people, right? Um, there was a uh, an article uh, an article in Fair magazine, it's uh, September 2015, and it has um, it has some really neat stats and it and they they quoted some of the stuff where they talked about like sort of like this this crisis. Uh, of all of these people leaving Iraq, Syria, Libya, Afghanistan, um, and they're going to Europe, right? And they're and they're going to uh, they're going to these places because of political and military unrest in their homes. Um, in one camp in Jordan, for example, there's like the 600,000 people in this refugee camp, and so these the, the effects of these um, uh, invasions and occupations are really, really deep and um, far-reaching. And um, and so we're really isolated in the West, and we have this sort of like um, sort of this pundit class, right, that are used to sort of garner support for for war. Um, we have like these soft liberals, and we have these conservatives that, you know, the talking heads that we see on TV, and, and we read the op-ed in the New York Times and stuff. And these are the people that had once, you know, uh, they're the justificators for war, um, and uh, and these are the people that try to ignore sort of all of these things that happen. And then now we're you know we're having these sort of uh, these repercussions and this blowback of of sort of the cost of of what these adventures in the Middle East are for us, right? Um, David, uh, I, you bring up a really interesting phrase: militarized diplomacy. Can you tell me more about that, or how does that actually function? How do we see that? Story? Uh, yeah, so it it sort of shows itself in that um, we will resort to hard-lined military positions, right? Um, 
the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for example, the United States is not a fair broker within that, that conflict. And so they arm um, Israel to like what, something like $3 billion a year or something like that. Or, or it, it's just this influx of military hardware, um, NGOs that, that supply intelligence and, uh, and data and um, the infrastructure that Israel needs to, to, you know, to carry out its apartheid in, in, in the West Bank and Gaza. That's just one Egypt example. too. In Egypt and Saudi Arabia exactly. too, right? Um, the United States supported Mubarak and, and during this whole, this, you know, the, the, and while at the same time we celebrated sort of this people's revolution, right? And so the, the diplomacy that surrounds these, um, these, these current events is that the United States comes out and says one thing, you know, we're working on a peace plan, we're having this, these diplomatic relations, but in the background of what's actually like coming out, um, during these negotiations is that the United States has no interest in um, acting diplomatically or looking to to um, negotiate, you know, within, like, fair dealings. So it's a, it's a really militarized um, uh, process where it's, it's, um, it's, it's sort of, like, supported in this, uh, like, really oppressive or, um, uh, you know, non... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, uh, like it's not true. Not like, fair, yeah, and not equitable. Yeah, and, and, not, and not fair dealing. Yeah, hey, go ahead. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm gonna like I'm gonna point out, right? I mean, regardless of our own biases, right? If you're if you support Israel, maybe it's a good thing America isn't a fair broker. But I I think we shouldn't pretend America's a fair, fair broker, though. That's that's actually what bothers me. Like maybe you can have all your arguments on why Israel's just and why. It's, more morally justified than the Palestinians, right? And it maybe David, I know David's position on this are a lot more black and white than mine. <laughs> like not, I mean, that's a good way. Like, I mean, you're a lot more opinionated on this than I am. And he could argue with you about this. But then, but, but I think it's, it's mind-boggling to say that, for instance, Obama was the kind of this great anti-Israel figure that people thought he was. When he upped military aid and did all this other stuff for them, like just the, the American military establishment, regardless of Obama's personal views or whatever, just does favor Israel Saudi Arabia, and disproportionately diplomatically, like it's never a neutral broker in that in, in that situation. And oh, I'm glad you, sorry, go on. You want to continue, David? Oh, exactly. exactly. And so, I mean, people look at Obama as like this sort of like departure from from U.S. foreign policy, but he's like sort of the embodiment of of like conventional classic U.S. Uh, foreign policy. He was a, a great strategist in a lot of ways because he saw that sort of this really expensive venture that was going on because of the Bush years, and then he had been able to find a strategy where you're pulling back all of this, like, expensive, um, you know, military might, and he started to concentrate it into different areas. So we're seeing these drone bases, we're seeing these like, new strategies, operations and stuff that manifested themselves even more so under Obama. Right? And Obama was this like, you know, this big arbiter of peace, right? He comes along and he says these really great things. But in the background, I mean, he, that some of the stuff that was going on under, under his regime was just, you know, just as brutal, you know, if not worse than, than, than Bush because Can of I, sort of what he, of what he, what he was talking about. Yeah, go ahead. Maybe, uh, I'll be double advocate. I'll be double yeah. advocate here. But I wanted to direct this conversation into how understanding this landscape, how does this landscape frame the critique of Islam? So 
And you'll go ahead and finish what you were going to say, and then let's jump on how it frames critique. For sure. Actually, I'm, I'm happy about that. I, I think this is exactly where we should go, actually. Right? Then we can start talking about, you know, some of the leaks, leaks and stuff, too, right? And, uh, okay, um, essentially, if you were, like, let's say, I could argue, however, that isn't it good that America arms Israel like that and supports it disproportionately? Because wouldn't you say, you know, that it's surrounded by hostile hostile players like Iran and to segue into our conversation next on how it affects Islam with the Iranians and, you know, and like Egypt was just recently had the, the the Muslim Brotherhood in power, right now has to back, you know, they're both bad in my opinion, but, you know, one is, was, was hostile towards Israel, right? Wouldn't you say that America is just defend, being a good ally and is defending its partner? And the second thing is American hegemony, right? If you were Let's say like, there's, no, there's no centralized power in America. Like, even Obama is a slave to the system. But if you believed in the system, why wouldn't you want America to have global dominance? Because how do you know other countries will play fair in foreign policy? Isn't it smart to make sure your country has all the power, all the guns, all the, all the economic power, so no one else can screw with it? Uh, what's your response to that? Because uh, I, I have an answer to that as well. But David, go ahead. Um, well, I can answer the I can answer the first question. So, um, sort of your 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 question about um, you know uh, is, wouldn't it be a good thing that the United States you know arms and supports Israel as sort of the sea of you know barbarity in the Middle East, right? But uh, but this is this is sort of like uh, this is this is where the view you know of like this sort of like racist trope about uh, about what Islam is and what and Muslims. And, and how there's this like you know, this, this like barbarian hordes that were you know this it's a co- really colonial view right um, you know we're defending you know the, the bastion of free speech and the only democracy in in in, um, in the Middle East and so it's um, it's it's not it's not exactly true right we we had all of these um, opportunities to sort of foster democracy in this like really like positive fashion but with through U.S. imperialism like we there was always the inflection of this militarism within the region. And so you're destabilizing regimes. And you're, you know, Iran is like sort of that perfect example of that, where you would have had this sort of democracy that was, would have been able to flourish in the Middle East. But like we came in and we did, you know, this, this instituted this coup and we brought in this really brutal regime that, that, that sort of took over after that. And so, and I know it's South Asia. It's South Asia and not, and not the Middle East, but Pakistan in general is al Haq. Right, you know, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, and, you know, like so. Uh, the U.S. uses this narrative that um, the this sort of colonial narrative that it, it hides cover, you know, in in supporting Israel with, um, against the Palestinians, and so the the sort of the quote unquote peace talks that have been going on, you know, have never been sort of this honest brokerage, right? Um, where where if you were to read what what these agreements were were to be about, like. Uh, the Palestinians wouldn't have control over, you know, any sort of like uh, resources like water, right? Uh, or control of industry and like what they can do with trade and all this sort of stuff. Like, who would, you know, in their right mind, as like finding sort of some statehood or some sort of like a local, a regional identity, like say yes to, you know, any types of these types of like brutal agreements, right? So the United States was has always been, you know, not just a third party you know, looking after both interests. It's like party to Israel. So, like, it it really has no sort of authority, you know, uh, that that shows, you know, any sort of, like, um, 
you know, good governance, you know, or or good intentions, you know, that that comes out of that. Oh yeah, you we all know who likes to talk about good intentions, huh? <laughs> well, anyway. uh, and that 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 leads us into like you know, like how does this form um, our views on Muslims and in Islam, and, and because we're coming from this sort of colonial, uh, this this imperialist sort of viewpoint, our our sort of our state class, like our pundit class and our and our media, you know, that 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 sort of adheres to the state, this party narrative, they use this uh, this uh, this this message that is that we're constantly under attack, that you know that we must defend ourselves, that we need to have this sort of like demonized enemy to to you know to exert our you know foreign policy, and that's really where where this comes into. Yeah, I wanted to jump in on that because what I'm going to say, I think, is a natural uh, segue for you to, to explore more on that. But to answer Adam's question on why shouldn't have America, why shouldn't America have more power? Why shouldn't America be leading? And there's, there's sort of four points to that for me. The first is the assumption of moral superiority. And as someone who grew up here and, and who loves this country, I, I can't help but notice the moral superiority and the, the arrogance with, in which we talk about other nations, other cultures, other religions. And so that is a problem that I've seen growing over the years. It's not something that uh, is, is temporal to any sort of one president or another. So the conversation lacks honesty, and in all honesty, it lacks good faith in how we deal with other people. And so there's a lack of trust in how people view America. And as someone who is South Asian and Afghan, I, I see this. And as someone who has strong contacts in Europe, I see how we're viewed in that with extreme skepticism. And I think that's warranted skepticism. The other part of it is just, especially in this administration, the lack of curiosity that American leadership has about the people that it targets. And that includes in the Obama administration. I think it's bipartisan in the way that we just don't really have a genuine curiosity understanding the communities that we demonize. And that leads mm-hmm. into what we're talking about today, where the patriotism bleeds into nationalism, and it, it leads in this blanket humanization, I see, about anything that doesn't fall into the label America. So, and the, the prime example I can give you is 9-11, which we can all agree was a horrible, horrible incident. But when we saw 9-11 and, and the, the sort of subsequent attacks um, in foreign territories after that, we see this, this melodrama of American lives and, and you know, the, the white, golden-haired children on TV and, and all this sort of humanization for 3,000 people. But we don't ignore the tens of hundreds of thousands of people we've killed in the process. And so those, those lives don't matter. And every single life matters. But when our All lives matter, Chibi. All lives matter. All lives matter. Exactly. So the point being is that when we when we give preference to one type of human life over another, it sets the pathway for exactly what we're talking about. It, if we don't just go from othering or dehumanizing, that's the first step because then we go into demonizing the other. And mm-hmm. finally, that goes into you know what if America is leading? It's a matter of if America is at its prime, if America is great in in the vision that it was capable of being. So we're not, it's not a matter of making America great again. It's a matter of we were never great to begin with. We're still working on it. So if America's reaching its potential, by all means, America can lead. But we're not there. And I think 
the issue that I have is that we have this illusion that we're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to comment two things on that, right? I'm, I'm going to be, I'm going to say devil's advocate. That's actually kind of what I believe. Every country has a dark side, right? And America is not the worst country in history, but it's not the best country in history. And the problem is people think it's never done any wrong. That's where I disagree with them. Now, is it the worst country in the world? No, I don't think so. It does have the most power, so it can do the most damage, and that's what we're talking about it right now. The second thing I wanted to say is to segue into how it affects Islam. This is my conversation. This is my, not my conversation. This is my main point. There is more motive to make Muslims a boogeyman than to actually solve Islamic terrorism. It, because it, it creates a great distraction, and, it's at, and, it, and, it, and actually solving Islamic terrorism steps on the toes of important allies America has in the Middle East. And therefore, it does not want to actually stop terrorism. It just, but it does want to have the boogeyman of this other looming over its head. And this is going to segue in who is America backing in Syria right now? Who, who controls the power in the Middle East right now? You know what I mean? And it comes down to the fact that, you know, a lot of the proxies fighting Assad and proxies fighting Iran and Russia are Saudi, you know, Gulf Arab backed. And the, it, which, disproportionately sponsored probably the most terrorism is Salafi-based. Even the Muslim Brotherhood terrorism dwarfs Salafi-based terrorism, right? And yet, we're not supposed to talk about these countries and how they fund terrorism, not, in, not when it comes to public policy, but we are supposed to talk about how bad Muslims are and immigrants are. But we can't talk about funding these mosques, right? No, we just kick the immigrants out instead, which actually makes it worse because globally it causes more terrorism. But Iran, however, we constantly talk about Iran, Iran's influence in America, and like let's preface that with exactly what we had talked about in another conversation offline is how we've all seen the the rising favor for demonizing Iran and giving Saudi Arabia a pass because of the politics in play. Yes, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, like David David talked about this a lot more a lot as well. But I know like I've this one friend of mine who's an analyst, not a hobby analyst like I am. But like a legit, like, she, she was paid to analyze things in different organizations. Um, two of them. One of them is very, I should say very anti-Islam, but she's very skeptical of Islam and she's very pro-Israel. And the other one is very, uh, is, is like, she's Muslim. <laughs> she's Muslim, but she's some, in some ways she's conservative, right? Both of them have basically talked about how there's a, there's a shifting focus on anti-Islamist sites and many websites that are government funded. That to talk less about Saudi Arabia and Salafism and how Saudi Arabia funds mosques and, and, and other and, and groups themselves, both in North America and abroad, and more just about Iran and Iranian policy and Hezbollah, right? And part of it is because alliances with Israel, because a lot of anti-Islamist organizations are Israeli backed. This is not, no, before we go on any further, no, Jews do not control the world. APAC does not control everything in America. In fact, APAC has suffered many losses. Jews do not control the world. There's not a Jewish global conspiracy. I need to preface that because people could easily listen to what we say and be like, ha-ha, it's the Jews. No, I'm talking specifically about a nation state and its influence. It's also Saudi Arabia. It's also Mexico, which is not Jewish. And Saudi Arabia is not Jewish. So it has nothing to do with Jews. They're not the head of anything. They're just one player. Israelis are just one player out of many, right? But I've noticed that uh, a lot of organizations that are backed by them shift, shift their focus away from God. I've had a person... Uh, you know, I've had a couple of people who I'm friends with who work in some anti-Islam organizations say that they're, they're explicitly supposed to avoid talking about Saudi Arabia. You know? I mean, uh, it's, it's, so it's, it's palatable. I can actually, it's actually, I can actually see it personally. Not just observe it, but I've actually had people tell me this, right? Uh, from both sides of the political spectrum. 
and yet we're supposed to talk about Islamism and how Islam is a, Islamism and Islamic extremism is a fundamental threat. But we can't talk with the number one funder about it. And the reason is because of politics. We cannot undermine Saudi interests because we need them in the Middle East. Oh, from an American point of view, we need them, I mean. Yeah, and that's, the, that's the argument. This is only within, like, sort of an accepted spectrum, right? Like, we're, we're, we're supposed to talk about Islamist terrorism, but we're only allowed to only go so far. We're only allowed to talk about it in regards to our enemies, right? And this is, you know, specifically uh, Iran and, and, and Syria right now, right? Um, there's um, some, some really good government data, some scholarly reports and stuff that talk about, you know, uh, some of this stuff. And, like, uh, you have... Um, you have actual numbers that sort of can that, that back up a lot of like what you're saying, right? Um, there's a, there's a, a citations needed podcast that I was just listening to, episode 12. It's from October 11th, 2017, and uh, there was a report that they had referenced, and it said 96% of Islamic terrorism from is from Saudi Arabia and supported, right? And so that's that's pretty. It's it's just this huge, huge, huge number, right? But but this is uh, exactly what we're not allowed to talk about. What we're allowed to talk about is ISIS um, and uh, and sort of the, the sort of the what, what what small and tiny regional effects that they have. Not that you know, not that those aren't aren't minimal at all, right? I mean, like the people that they terrorize, you know, and and so and and the effects that they have in 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 their region is is pervasive and it's terrible, right? But we're, but we're only allowed to talk about that. We're not allowed to talk about sort of anything else. Well, let's like Rania Khalek, right? I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name properly, right? I, controversial figure in many ways. A lot of people hate her. But, you know, and I'm sure a lot of can people who, the, who sorry, are... Can you say the name again? Rania Khalek. I believe that's her name, yeah. right? I think David knows about her. Um, now, a lot of people who hate Assad hate her because... No, no, who... who, who Hate, uh, who, who hate Assad, hate her because she basically says that the, that the Mujahideen fighting against him are worse. I do not, I want to put a disclaimer in for anybody listening. I don't think Assad is a good, good, good dude, okay? But I'm just going to talk about what she said. And what she says isn't really disputable, right? That, you know, in territories that are controlled by, roughly by Assad, or at least, you know, the places that are so safe in Syria, you can go to a nightclub, you can get drunk, right? You know, you can do all the things that, like, you know, new atheists that say Islam is evil, right? All that stuff. You're allowed to do that stuff, right? All the stuff that, that, that Shani Allah says is bad. Not all the stuff, a lot of it, I should say, right? Because the culture is so it's secular relative to the region, not relative to the West. But you can't, you talk to people who have lived in territory controlled by al-Nusra and ISIS and things like that. And I, I shouldn't say ISIS, because ISIS isn't really America-backed, but al-Nusra and other groups are, right? And they... It, it, it is like it's like it's like really hardline law. Like you could get executed, you could get beaten for doing like you know quote unquote secular freedoms there, right? And yet we are more likely to talk about Assad gassing people and ISIS than we are to talk about the Al Nusra and other groups. Most people have never heard of Al Nusra. Only people who actually really read about the stuff know about Al Nusra, right? Now that said, Assad, I know pe- people who have been personally affected by the Assad government and. Assad is a bad dude, so this is not an excuse for him. I'm just talking about Sharia and Islamism and Islamic law. And you know, if you want to talk about radical Islam, one side enforces it a lot worse than the other. Yet we only talk about one, a few players. And it goes back to the point you know? of how foreign policy is impacting how we talk about Islam. Yeah, it is. 
It's exactly it, right? So what happens is that essentially we can't, like, we have to constantly talk about Iranian proxies. But, you know, when was the last time you saw a terrorist attack by a guy saying, you know, Ali, you know, you know, something, something, Ali, like, like some kind of Shia jargon. It's always, it's always like, you know, the guy's always a Taksiri Salafi. He might be an ISIS affiliate or he might be an affiliate of Al-Qaeda. But it, 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 and he always just comes in contact with Saudi-funded, you know, groups or, or people linked to these organizations. It's, it, it's, or Muslims, Saudi-funded mosques, Saudi-funded websites, things like that, right? Well, you know, these extreme... Look at American interests, our number one challenge as progressive Muslims is tolerant, diverse, reform-minded, however you want to label it, our number one challenge is Saudi dollars. Yeah, but it is. And, and, but it's not just America. It's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the United Kingdom as well. But my point is that but I've never seen, a very rarely, I think it was like the last time some, some Shia, like Iranian-backed terrorists have done anything outside of like the Middle East was like, I think it was, I think it was what's the country called? Um, it's in, it's in uh, Argentina, I think, right? Where they attacked a synagogue or something, right? But otherwise, they're very, very inactive actively. They, they seem to have no interest in, in, in like spending a lot of money and funding these like, hardline Shias to do any kind of violence or anything. In fact, even Iran, you compare it to Saudi Arabia, Iran is like schizophrenic. It ha- it's extremely secular in some ways. It's kind of on the verge of changing, and it's extremely Islamic still, repressive, right? While Saudi Arabia has just started letting women drive, but otherwise it's still extremely repressive, you know? Um, Honestly, like, Saudi Arabia's recent reforms, I think, are more of a PR stunt in order to survive the next generation. I don't think any of that... Because they're running out of oil. And they, and, and they can't rely on, like, 800 Filipinos and Pakistanis and Indians to go work for them. The women have to get back to work, basically, you know? So it's like... Uh, so, like I, so we don't see a lot of this all of these terrorists coming, and you don't see, like, for instance, you know, you talk about the United Kingdom, right? When people talk about, like, people are like, oh, America is not as bad as the United Kingdom. Okay, let's talk about the United Kingdom. You know, let's, you know, um, basically, these guys, they're not, they very rarely have, like, uh, you know, Hussein and all this stuff written on their head. They're Sunnis, usually, and they're usually Saudis, they're usually hardline Diobandis, or they're Salafis, right? Which are all Saudi. Theresa May came after t- the terrorist attack, and she started talking tough on Islam, but then praised Saudi Arabia, did not mention Saudi funding of, of madrasas and masjids once. Jeremy Corbyn, Iron Hill Iron, the guy who's nice on immigration and praises Muslims and Islam, he came out and he said, we got to stop the Saudi funding in our institutions. Like, he didn't even say Saudi Arabia or radical Islam, he straight up said Saudi funding. Yeah. And what a backwards world that the, that the quote-unquote pro-Islam candidate is talking about taking away the money, right? But Theresa May, who talks about taking away civil rights, but has no intention of cutting off the money supply of these extremists. You know, it all comes down to the fact that they, that Saudi, that, that Saudi has interests, their interests at heart in the Middle East. You know? Yeah. 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 So David, do you want to comment about, sorry, sorry, keep going. Yeah, if the West was serious about uh, about really combating, you know, this you know this militant uh, this militant Islam, then I mean, like they would be like targeting like the the most purveyor, you know, uh, actors of of, of, of the, and supporters of of, of this, right? Um, money and guns and weapons and support is going to um, um, these you know the small you know um, groups like ISIS from you know the CIA and some of these uh, some of these other like intelligence agencies like this is the these are the leaks that are coming out and this is the stuff that 
you know, they're even having to admit to now, right? And so um, if, if this is something that we're supposed to be combating, then, then why are we taking part in it, right? So if, if, yeah. if it's terrorism that we're fighting, then why are we participating in it? And like the reason why Israel, I brought up Israel before, right now we're talking about America, but Saudi Arabia, if you look at WikiLeaks, really gradually you see like, from like, you know, WikiLeaks has been around for what, over 10, maybe 6 years now, like 10 years almost? Like, you could see the evolution, like before it was kind of a WikiLeaks thing that Israel and Saudi Arabia were getting closer together, right? And people, some people even said, you know, WikiLeaks is like a Zionist conspiracy against, like the Zionists are, are using WikiLeaks to Cause, cause doubt among the Muslim Imam. Because, you know, of course, everybody has to... That it's a, a Russian uh, vessel. No, now, yeah. now it is. Now they talk about Russians, right? Yeah. But there's actually some actually... But, hey, uh, what are you saying, David? No, go ahead. Yeah. And then, like, and then now it's actually the way I talk to my Zionist friends and, like, they straight up are just like, yeah. And actually, to the credit, to, my, to, the, to, the, to the credit of my Zionist friends, they are upset that Israel is getting closer to Saudi Arabia. Right? A lot of them are. Because guess what? Zionists are human beings too. They're people. They don't like Islamism. They don't like people getting killed. And they don't like seeing Saudi Arabia do this stuff, right? So, you know, you can support the state of Israel and, and still be against Saudi Arabia. But they are complaining now that the two countries are getting close together. And now there's hush-hush about Saudi activity in the region, you know? And so it's not out in the open, right? And you kind of see it reflected in the policy because now suddenly... When we, we're supposed to talk about Islamism because we still need to be scared of Muslims because we still have interests in the region, right? <laughs> but we can't exactly talk about Salafism. So it's always going to come back to Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood. But again, I don't, like, the Hamas is back with the Muslim Brotherhood. But, you know, with CARE and, like, ISNA and ICNA and all the organizations that have Muslim Brotherhood roots, and they did, but we can't deny that. You go to these organizations, right? And you'll find people who are socially conservative, but a lot of them are like, do you want Islamic law in the government? They're like, no. A lot of them are like, you know, what do you think of the gay rights or something? They're like, well, as long as it's not my son, I don't care. Right? They're, like, they're, not, they're like, they're surprisingly apolitical. It's, these are neutered organizations. They're not in the West, outside of the Middle East. They're not doing anything. And yet we constantly like talk about them. We're going to throw them off of. No, but like, yeah, they're not going to like... like but we, we, we consistently talk about them all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but that's not, the biggest problem is not them right now. And, and, and it's like most of them are pretty benign, these organizations are. If you actually go to these, go and talk to them and stuff, right? Again, I'm not I saying they're say, liberal. Well, I'm going to interject. I would say that as a reformer and as someone who spent pretty much most of last year really surveying the scene because it was shifting so much, it has become so much more difficult to talk about Islamism because a lot of the rhetoric that Islamists use is now being championed by a lot, uh, a wider audience, including at sometimes myself, because Muslims have been so dehumanized by this administration and by the policies that are coming out of this administration that the quote-unquote Islamist cause and the, and the rhetoric is one that is relevant to Muslims today. Mm-hmm. Which does not yeah. mean that I support Islamism. It means that because America is doing such a shitty job of sorting this out, it's making it that much tougher to fight it. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, like, you can you can want uh, reform, but you you can you can you can say we need to reform Islam and make it more liberal, and still say these people are not going to blow up buildings, right? Like, you could say I don't agree with conservatives, for instance, like evangelical Christians, like you, for instance, right? Now, let's say you're pro-choice, right? I know you're I don't know if you are or not, but let's say you're pro-choice. You could say, okay, these people are pro-life. I disagree with them, 
but they're not going to go around on a killing spree and start murdering pro-choice women. You know what I mean? You might just have an abortion building. That's hard line. But most, most people are pro-life will not bomb an abortion building, right? And you can say that. And you can say that most of them don't even want to do that, right? And, 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 and that's, but that's, it's, everything's been politicized. Even the discussion of reform has become politicized. Mm-hmm. You understand what I mean? Well, I mean, so to go back to Islamism, it, the pro-choice one is such a, it's an important example, but it's a soft example in this case because the thing that's really vexing about Islamists is that they try to create special favors, special circumstances, uh, special opportunities for Muslims using the victimhood narrative. But as I've also experienced myself in the last year, a lot of their complaints are legitimate. Complaints that Kara have said or have expressed are legitimate. The way they go about it is, is antagonizing. It is uh, detrimental to the larger Muslim majority because it requires the larger pluralism Islam to be to be silenced in favor of their narrative. So it's complicated, but I'm saying that because there needs to be some sort of political agency or activism in order to to sort of take back control on how Muslims in Islam is being treated or how Muslims are being treated in Islam is being talked about, it has made Islamism that much more difficult. But when it comes to reform, it's, oh gosh, the, the current climate, the way that Islam is talked about in foreign policy and domestic policy, it has made reform... Um, it has weakened us. It has, it has really made us irrelevant in so many ways because, A, what I see happening is that reformers are being used as, as tokens and as uh, pawns and part of a larger agenda to, to sanitize the more damaging rhetoric and to sanitize the more damaging policy. But at large, the agency that reformers need to be impactful is not available to us. At all, not in terms of funding, not in terms of resources, not in terms of even having access to the table. And so the foreign policy is reflected directly into, into the national landscape here and how, how I see what's going on today. Yeah, and like, the, the problem is, though, it's like, we get really confused with certain things, too. It's, it's like, it, 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 because you need to have a constant enemy, but you don't want the enemy to go away, you have to say, because sometimes there's a love in terms of terrorist attacks and things like that, you have to start labeling, like, someone who is just socially conservative as being, as being the same as being an Islamist. Or someone who's not even socially conservative, but might personally not indulge in secular, in secular activities, like, things that are, that are considered forbidden in Sharia. They might, they might follow it personally, like, they might not drink, but they might not want to ban drinking. They might not, they might not be gay, but they might not want to ban gay marriage. You know, they, they might cover up, but they might support women's rights to dress any way they want, right? And they're now being labeled because they want... And they might support the existence of mixed-gendered uh, jamaats, but then want to spray in a separate gender themselves. Like, I know a lot of Muslim women like this, who, like, it, it, their personal life, they live very socially conservative, but then they'll literally hold signs and, like, march in a gay pride parade, and they'll, like, you know, argue about why there should be mixed mixed race jamaats and stuff but they themselves will personally pray when men and women are separated right and those people just by just by being like that they're labeled as Islamists mm-hmm. and they, they and the, the reason is isn't because the people are confused although that's part of it also because you know when when there isn't any activity in the Middle East or there's not a lot of terrorist activity you need to have an enemy there to justify continued continued projects in the region right so like 
So if we're talking about like a, an, an, an Israeli-backed anti-Islamist organization, they might sincerely want to stop Islamism, but then they re, but if they want to continue getting government support from the organization, they can't say they can't just start talking about Saudi Arabia. So they're gonna start talking about maybe the Muslim Brotherhood. Even that gets old sometimes. Sometimes they have to start talking about like, oh yeah, so like the hijab is bad. Like they have to mm-hmm. they have to go there because they have to keep that antagonism up because they have to keep the narrative that our country is surrounded by barbarians and these people are not like you. And because these people are not like you, they don't believe in the things like you do. We have to, you know, they're monsters, so we have to start critiquing every little thing that they do and make it out to be more than it is. And, they, and, and like, they won't, for instance... The, Go on. Yeah. No, the talking like the Kurds, for simplistic. Like, even when we look at the, the Iranian protests, it became all about, you know, some woman standing there with a scarf. And I'm like, thinking, is, is that how we're going to simplify this, that these women are so oppressed? And when we look at the lifestyles of Iranian women, and we compare them with the average lifestyle of the of an American woman, uh, there is a day and night difference. I would say in many cases, culturally, American women are repressed in terms of, uh, you know, just how, how we're treated like commodities, how we're treated like manual labor. We're not, we're not given a lot of the, the respect of, of being a woman in the way that Muslim countries respect women, aside from the barbarism. Well, you, you, could say, you, you could say Muslim countries have benevolent, benevolent patriarchy, right? Uh, right. You know what I mean? Like, like the whole like the woman must be protected and the man is a beast and all that kind of stuff, right? But anyways, uh, David, anything you want to say? Were bigger than the scarf, and it became the simple talking point became the the, the action of the scarf. Then yeah, that just hit you off. No, no, it's totally true. David, anything you want to say about this? Um, something you touched on on uh, your last podcast is when you were talking to dog whistles, and mm. so the, some some of these instances are. Like dog whistles for uh, for the sort of the, the xenophobes and, and the racists too, right? And so they use these uh, they use these different tropes to like continue to prop up that narrative that you know like these are backwards people that these are savages and and uh, and that sort of thing. There was um, there was a, a podcast that I was listening to just recently that talked about uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring up um, Sam Harris and he talked about like how he had written this like demographic threat piece. Um, in, in one of his, um, I, I, I'm not sure if it was in his, in, his, in his blog or something, he was forced to retract it. But this was um, this was where he had written this whole like exaggerated migratory immigration numbers um, about Muslims in European countries, notably France. Oh, uh, wait, wait, wait! I'm, I'm gonna let you continue. But this was before the mass refugee crisis that we that, that happened in Germany. This was before that, by the way. But keep going. Yeah, but. But what it is is it's this like it's this continuation of this like uh, impending threat, right? That you know uh, that because of sort of the rhetoric that that people mm-hmm. like this y- utilize is that they simplify everything down to like these sort of nuts and bolts and like decontextualize everything from you know greater history, right? It's like this uh, this ahistorical narrative that like just fits because uh, of their like sort of you know, bigoted views or, or whatever, right? But uh, but this whole um, the, like to use demographics in like in in a way that like impends this threat that's incoming, right? So it's it's one of the things that gets propped up in sort of this this uh, liberal sort of like uh, you know uh, a left leaning um, you know uh, this is what they say, but but they're not, and and, and they're they're no. The what do you mean? Is actually, I'm really happy you brought this up, David. Actually, because. It's a great way to segue into like kind of what we're talking about, how this conversation of the problems in politics shapes how people think 
because people are, are they don't they don't know these dog whistles. There's a lot of stuff about dog whistles on the right, and that's been well established. We've had like conservative figures come out and say, you know, we can't say the N word, so we're just going to see the urban demographic and things like that, right? But with Islam, it's not the no one's actually come out and said they're using dog whistles, but they are. I had a conversation with someone that both me and Shereen know, who was saying that certain figures are not anti-Muslim because they didn't say they hate Muslims. But the same figure would argue that anti-Semitism can be subtle, right? And the problem I had with that is that he didn't recognize the dog whistles. Right? I think Muslims recognize them, right? But this, con- this tone, this constant subtext, this undertone of like, these people are barbaric, and look, look at these few polls, 70% of Egyptians want to kill apostates. What they won't mention is that 46% of Americans are okay with innocent civilians being killed in bombing campaigns. We're not even talking about collateral damage, just... The, yeah. Like not, not, not even caring, like not even caring about collateral damage. The collateral damage just happened because we're trying to bomb the bad guys and the people there. Oh well, right? Like like and while Muslim countries were lo- viewed a lot more immoral is an immoral thing, right? But that's a different discussion, right? Or like child marriage, they'll be like, oh look, you know, they say it's okay to have sex with a 15 year old girl and marry her. But then right now in Tennessee, the judges just struck down laws banning, you know, like like we, we don't talk about like and and I'll, I will say this though, well, right I'm now gonna, it's, well, it's a nicer. I'm going to interject real quickly because even aside from how dare you say look at the way that American girls are sexualized. I remember growing up, you know, in the 90s, and and the way that young girls were talked about, the way the offers that were available to them, the media they were exposed to was not as hypersexualized as as it is now. So whether you put someone into marriage or you created a culture where it's normal to have sex when you're 12, it's normal to be overtly sexual at seven. That is, you have to question, okay, first of all, those of, both of those are problems. But secondly, which one is getting talked about and which one is continuing at the momentum it's going at? But to quickly piggyback off the dog whistles, I want to add in another one, and that's the dog whistle of human rights. And there's a really good example I shared on Facebook. Uh, it was a live-action video with this pro-life uh, African activist where her, her exchange with a journalist is so on point. And we're not talking about Islam. So we're talking about the, the way that dog whistles are used. And in that case, the dog whistle was a human right. And so you see that exchange. And until, and I'll give Israel credit because he's been talking about these issues for so long and it wasn't until I started really experiencing it that I learned how these, how this dialogue works and how these frameworks work. Uh, I, 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 I can understand why you didn't believe me because like even that conversation I had with that friend of ours that we both know, is that he? I, I can understand why he doesn't believe me because it's not—it's not obvious. It's subtle. It's very subtle. And like you didn't believe it because you didn't see it, and now you see it. Now you've experienced it. Now you know. Yeah, I, that's what I was talking about, right? I, yeah, and I have zero tolerance for it. I'm actually trying really hard not to go off on people once I start seeing it now. But the point being is because I've evolved my voice and because I have such zero tolerance for it now because it's so fucking dehumanizing. It's alarming people because they don't understand, well, Shireen's not this neat little reformer who we could use for our own purposes. Now there's an actual person who has a platform and who is deviating from the normal. Yeah. And like, I, I want to say, though, it's very much possible to critique Islam without being hateful. There's a YouTube channel of a guy named Abdullah Samir, right? Um, but that's her death threat, so he doesn't tell where he lives. But he has some really scathing critiques of Islam. But he's always careful to humanize Muslims. He's a fan of Sam Harris, as we're talking shit about Sam Harris right now in this podcast. He's a fan of Sam Harris, right? So, but he, but unlike his, you know, the person he admires, he's very careful to distinguish the theology and the people, and not to make these gross generalizations based off of misquoted 
polls, the selective polls, and, and not quoting polls that contradict your your findings and things like that. And he, you know, and then Hassan Radwan was one of them. Is another one, and he's now more of a cultural Muslim. But he used to be the head of ex-Muslims uh, UK or Britain, or CM, I mean, so I think ex-Muslim Council of ex-Muslims Britain. Yes, and he used to be the former head of that, right? And his critiques are on point, and, and none of them say that Islam is a uniquely evil, horrible religion of bad ideas. But everything he says is stuff that regular Muslims believe in, and he critiques stuff that most Muslims actually believe in. He doesn't critiquing things that, like maybe ISIS and maybe believe in, and most Muslims don't. And that's how, and, and I never once felt, and I think most people who follow him, most of them don't feel he demonizes Muslims. And he came out against Gert Wilders and things like that. And Klingshore was one of them. He disappeared off the face of the planet. But Klingshore had a good thing to critique religion too. But these other guys, they always, like for instance, I could talk to Abdullah Samir. I could say something nice about Muslims and Islam. And so Abdullah Samir would be like, that's cool. And he would maybe like praise it. Or like, uh, or Mary Namaz might even do something like that. Although, you know, she's pretty, she's pretty angry, but like, but like with the, the characters like Sam Harris and Bill Maher, they tend to like, anytime somebody says anything, like anybody, anytime somebody even humanizes Muslims, they have to point out the bad. And then they emphasize it. So they're like, oh, there's so many of them that are bad. You know, it's just dangerous guys. You don't know, man. And then, like, for instance, yeah, like, and then they'll somehow, they'll stop. Hello, yeah? Yeah, no, we do it daily. Every single time I bring out the uh, the sex grooming gang incident in um, the UK that recently came out, I'm having people throw Shari at me. I'm sorry. What does Shari have to do with a bunch of perverts uh, of Pakistani descent in, in one country? And so it's impossible. Not only is it offensive, and it, it not only is it extremely ignorant, but it is impossible to move forward when you're constantly swatting flies, so to speak. Yeah, and, and, and no, but it's not just it's not just that. It's like it's like, for instance, they'll they'll even misquote. Like it's, it's like it's just like that. Like they'll somehow say raping. Like I've heard I've had people say to me that in Islam it's okay to rape non-Muslim women. In Islam, looking at or touching a woman who's not your wife or your family, just like just even touching them and being in contact with them is forbidden. Much less raping them is, is even worse, right? Mm-hmm. And somehow they think it's like a, it's like, it's like a Sharia thing that these grooming gangs do this shit. And then there's a bunch of perverted brown guys that give girls drugs and alcohol. Oh wow, drugs and alcohol are against Islam too. Is that somehow Sharia influence? I don't know. Um, no, but the thing is, they misquote these facts. And, and like, for instance, somebody will, will quote, you know, the, 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 like apostasy in Egypt for Africa views, and then somehow apply that to Syrian refugees. But those same polls that make Egyptians look bad, actually show that Syrians are much more secular than the, a lot of the rest of the Muslim world, right? But somehow we'll, because of both Muslims, somehow Egypt applies to Syrians, right? And then they'll say like FGM, so then somebody will say Indonesia is not as bad as Egypt is, right? 85% say people should be allowed to be apostates, and, you know? Um, and then they'll say, oh, but like, you know, 50% of, of Indonesian women have FGM done. Which I actually kind of question because I've been to Indonesia multiple times. It doesn't seem very popular. I think Achi, that Achi and like some of the Javanese villages, like the isolated villages, kind of skews the numbers. But if, if you if you start to count people who are completely isolated from the modern world, then it's kind of like it kind of changes the perspective a little bit. But um, I find that they'll, they'll they'll somehow pick and choose different stats, apply them broadly to Muslims. And when you talk about where the stat doesn't apply in another region, they'll point out something bad about that region and just apply generally to the Muslim world. But meanwhile, if you pull Americans about things like homosexuality, they would say that they, that they support gay marriage. And then someone like Trump gets elected, and suddenly they open up 
about the shit they were too scared to say. They're too scared to say that the Obama years. And they would, you know, suddenly what people said they don't like white nationalists. But then suddenly they would, they would suddenly become popular. And now white nationalism is different from white supremacism. We've got to separate those two things now, right? And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting how, sorry, yeah? No. So I want to, I want to piggyback off the SGM issue because I think that's a really good example of tying in what David's talking about with what you're talking about. And that is the, you know, the SGM, uh, issue that's going on in the States. I've, I've seen, where initially people don't want to talk about the religious aspect of it because it's bigoted. But now that the conversation is so contentious and it's growing and religion becomes the next stepping stone in that more people are aware of the issue and that's where they're pushing it, um, in part, in part, I guess in part with, um, through male circumcision. But because religion is where that conversation is undeniably going, we now have non-Muslim people wanting to talk about religion as if it is their idea, but wanting to control how we talk about Islamic, uh, the Islamic religion in terms of SGM. So to me, that is, that is, that is unthinkable. It is unthinkable that I, that I give up the agency of talking about my own faith to someone who hasn't studied the faith, to someone who isn't Muslim, who has no interest in Muslim communities, and give them the platform or be somewhat of their, their um, mouthpiece on this subject, when there is no real curiosity or respect, even for people of this faith who have studied this faith, and so that. Well, it's true. If you if you left Islam, if you left Islam, suddenly they'll think you're an expert. Even if you didn't do any of the studying you're doing now, right. I know you're doing Islamic studies courses now. Because even though you're a Muslim before, you didn't know as much as you did now, because you're actually properly studying it. But if you just, but even if you didn't do any of that, leave Islam. You know, talk about how, like, your husband used to punch you in the face or something. I know your husband wasn't Muslim, so it doesn't count. And then you'll suddenly have an audience and people want to hear what you want to say, right? And you can say whatever you want about the religion, you know? Exactly. Um, As a Muslim, my voice doesn't matter how much of a reformer, quote-unquote, reform I am. It doesn't matter what I say. As a Muslim, um, you're, you're essentially treated like another person of color, if not uh, arguably a little bit worse because of the, the current uh, dynamics. Yeah, and... No, and, and the thing I wanted to bring up about that is, like, to bring it back to what David was saying, how do politics affect how we talk about this? How do, how does the Kurds, right now, the Kurds, you know, poor guys, they don't got their independence. They're also, right now, working quite closely with uh, allied, allied forces, and, 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 and uh, they're very pro-Israel. And Israel's working with them, too, right? In America, the Israel back out. So, usually, when you read about Kurds, they're being praised. And they should be. They're good people, right? You know, I've met Kurds. They're cool. And they are actually relatively secular, and they, you know, and they're, they're not anal and stuff in, in some ways. Although I've really pissed off some of the Yazidis once, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, but, uh, this, but the thing is, like, FGM in Iran. So people, like, I remember watching the David Patman show. He's like, oh yeah, FGM happens in Iran, and it happens in Indonesia. But when it happens, where it, where it happens is, like, in, in the Achi province in Indonesia mostly, and in, in, in some isolated villages in Java, in urban centers where people are educated and have a modern lifestyle, they don't. Right, it has nothing to do with with, with Islam other, outside of IT. And in Iran, with the Kurds, North Iranians don't do this stuff. It's upstairs that North Iranians pause. Okay, North Iranians don't do that. They actually, it's the Kurdish regions that do FGM, right? And I remember reading about a Yazidi girl that got stoned to death by Yazidis and not Muslims. She fell in love with a Muslim woman. I'll try and find the story if I can. CNN reported it. She was stoned to death by her Yazidi family because she shamed them because she wanted to, she fell in love with a Muslim boy and then the guy rejected her and he sentenced her to death essentially by doing that because she had nowhere to run. 
And this was this was in, among the Kurds. But because the Kurds were like the Gatesville Institute, you know, they love to talk about how bad Islam is, but they'll, they praise the Kurds. They even said, well, the Kurds are, you know, they don't pray much, and they're not very religious, and therefore the Kurds aren't so bad, right? But we just had literally a non-Muslim group in, in Kurdistan stoning a woman to death. We have them doing FGM, right? And that's how politics plays it, because the Kurds are supposed to be the good guys. They're supposed to be fighting for, you know, they support, you know, they support Israeli interests. They support, you know, uh, they're secular, and they, they supposedly, but they support American interests, you know. And but they're like any other Muslim group. They have good. There's some stuff they do better. Like for instance, the women are a lot more free. Hence the female you know, Kurdish fighters. And then there's stuff like FGM that they have to deal with, right? Yeah, Actually, you know. I uh, brought that up because Kurds are. There's um, a colleague of mine that wants to go into a study on FGM in Kurdish communities, and that's a whole other story. But I wasn't even aware that. Kurds have that sort of epidemic, and so I've heard about it from him, and I've heard about it from Heather Mercer, who was a, a hostage by the Taliban, who was released by one of the Taliban, uh, who sort of switched sides, and and so she described that experience as well. So we we have documented evidence from people we trust, knowing that this is an issue that goes on there as well, but because exactly like you said, it's, well, it's not talked about. Policy. Nobody talks about it. Nobody talks about it, right? And I mean, that's what David's point is. Another example, which is outside the Middle East, but it involves a Muslim country. We, you know, people are like, oh, the Israel, but I'm not actually defend Israel now. Throughout this whole podcast, I'm like, Israel, Israeli group says this about Islamism, but doesn't want to talk about the funding. I've been saying that all the time. Israeli group, group funded by Israel, the Israeli government or links to it, or founded by Israeli, will not talk about Saudi money, but will talk about this. I've been shitting on them a lot. But I'm going to defend them now, right? We constantly talk about the Arab-Israeli crisis. We constantly talk about occupation, right? You know? Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is, America has some, at the time at least, before, when, when it became a talking, an everyday table, you know, dinner table conversation point, of some of America's allies were pro-Palestine, and some of, this was before Saudi Arabia and Israel became close, and at, and at the end, some of, uh, you know, America has strong interest in Israel and has a large Jewish population that rightfully wants to have a homeland in case there's another Holocaust, so they can run away and not be genocided, right? So, uh, so it was kind of it was so, it still somewhat could kind of debate the debate the, the issue, right? But then in Indonesia, right, th- there is an occupation going in West Papua, right? I believe it's West Papua. Like right now, I'm really tired, so I might be saying things I ordinarily can know really well. <laughs> but West Papua, I, I believe. They're occupying them. And you can see pictures of them. I, I mean, when I first went to get married to my wife, there was a girl who lived upstairs, you know, as an Australian girl, studying law. And she wanted to be an activist for the Papuans. Because, and, and then some of the pictures and some of the stuff that, is, that Indonesia does to them is brutal. And they were like, well, why don't we talk about this, right? Why don't we talk about this at all, this occupation? When the Indonesians occupy West Papua, we'll sit there and talk about, like, oh, my God, you know, how could the Israelis do this to the South Sea? But we won't talk about the West Papuans. Indonesia is just quiet about it, right? You know, people will say it's because of Muslims. No, it's because you start to read the research. The land there, Indonesia has a little, has cut a few deals with the U.S. about who controls what in the region. And, and what the second biggest gold mine in the world is in that region. And, and, and Indonesia can get some control. It kind of lets America do what it wants, lets America kind of mine it. And in return, they can kind of do what they want with that region and occupy it militarily and kind of subjugate these people, right? Well, and I think that comes you know? This is a narrative that a lot of a lot of people share that there are worse atrocities than what you know the Israel-Palestinian conflict 
is described as all around the world, but it's not given attention. And the fact that we do not give it attention, especially as a superpower and a leading superpower, is it inflates the the uh, the people that we're supposed to be fighting, which in this case is our own Islamists, when we don't give due attention to other issues that are actually more damaging, we give more sort of oxygen to the fire of the Islamist rhetoric of, oh, Palestine versus Israel, oh, Palestine is so oppressed, et cetera, et cetera, without even being able to have an honest... And, 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 and to, be, to be fair, there is an argument that Palestine is oppressed. I'm sure David, you know, because... Uh, I'm, a, I'm a lot more restrained on this because I kind of, when I talk to a lot of Zionists, I kind of see where they're coming from. Although, especially lately, I've kind of gone, I've kind of like back on the whole like, yeah, right now, I don't think Israel really cares about, I really don't think it right now, maybe because of the Palestinians or not, they just don't care about peace right now and like they're just occupying them. I'm kind of back oh, at that point there's now. Sides, there's but, two sides of the story. And so, we yeah. can't even have that conversation when we're so fixated on just one narrative and that goes back to you know, how foreign policy is framed and how, how certain conversations are avoided. But I wanted to go ahead and wrap it up because I know we've been on for a while. David, uh, you've been quiet. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, well, there's, yeah, there's a couple of, I guess, uh, the, the, the whole framing of, like, how we, um, uh, the connection between foreign policy and, like, how we, how we see Islam and, and, and Muslims is, is uh, it sort of always comes back to me that there's this sort of like accepted sort of framed debate that you know we're only allowed to debate like things within this certain spectrum right and and if we have anything that goes outside of that then that just that that is ignored or marginalized and um, and and to me I mean you brought up uh, Israel Palestine and and to me it's the Palestinians that that I see this this sort of narrative that's this uh, this identity that's they're dehumanized. Right. They're really dehumanized, aren't they? They're de- they're dehumanized. Um, one of the things that uh, that that we have, like sort of this pundit class that talks about, is that they they it's how it's um, it's how they look at um, uh, Muslims in general, right? It's like well, they're violent and, and they're barbaric, and and look at like you know suicide attacks and stuff like that. But like when you start to do the research and you start to like actually like pull the data and try to look at the reasons as to like why um, these crimes, these these terror acts occur, like um, there's manifestos left, there's um, there's documentary uh, evidence, um, you know, the pulled from crime scenes and stuff like that. And so when you start to like sift through this data, you find that there's a lot of like compelling reasons as to why people do the things that they do. But it's these reasons that are often left out of the conversation, right? And so, bro, 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 bro. I have a thought experiment for you. All right, all right. I have a thought experiment. What if you like took a Quran and you like took out all mentions of self-defense, and then you had like a Buddhist document and you put in that into Buddhism? What happened, bro? I bet the Buddhists would become all crazy. It's a thought. My thought experiment. It's just a thought experiment, bro. <laughs> You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. I don't know, even know how to respond. To that. <laughs> no, no, but, but, but that's what people reduce it to. They're like, oh, well, they're just following, like Sam Harris has said multiple times, ISIS is following Islam properly. Maybe some parts of it. Like, I'm not one of those people that are like, ISIS has nothing to do with Islam. No, they take a lot of inspiration from Islam. They do. But purely how Islam is supposed to be practiced. So where's the, like, where's the entire complex, thick system in place there? Where is, like, you know, where is this, this, this sophisticated, 
you know, charity system. Like, where's, where's, like, where's the scholars that basically say, you don't have proof, don't do hudud. Like, where's that entire tradition where they throw out, where they avoid the hudud punishment? ISIS goes straight forward. ISIS does takfir, but, like, they were, a lot of scholars were very careful doing takfir, and sometimes it was very theoretical, right? There's a lot of issues that ISIS has that's not Islamic. Like, even, like, in fact, the thing is, like, al-Baghdadi, people will say al-Baghdadi had a PhD in Islamic studies, but he got it from, like, an, a non-credited university. But even, and people who credited Islamic studies credentials don't say he's full of shit. But even people who graduated from institutions similar to his think al-Baghdadi is doing it wrong. And some, and then even then, they all talk about the history and geopolitics of it. And that's what David is constantly talking about, is the geopolitics and the history of it. But people want to reduce it down to text with mm-hmm. weird thought experiments and stuff. They have this random thought experiment. Of, what if we took out all the violence versus the Quran? You know what would happen? Yeah. We would have George Habash. If, you know, let's, let's look at the framework of the conversation we are having, the geopolitics. Uh, even the, the hostility that Muslim Americans are receiving I, you know, and, and it comes back to the question of what people say, well, do you change the Quran? You don't change the Quran. I think the Quran has a beautiful duality. It has layered interpretations, layer, layered meanings, and I think the the sort of uh, defense position that Islam takes through jihad, through aggressive militant jihad, is necessary. I'm sorry. And let's look at the NRA perspective of it. You know, why wouldn't you defend your home if somebody was invading? On the same front, why would I not defend myself? if somebody was attacking me. So we should not demonize the concept of jihad. We should understand it, have a scholarly discussion. Yeah, but that's my point, though. The, 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 why should we get rid of jihad? I completely No, no, like, like, I'll, I'll say one thing, because I know you got to wrap it up, so I'll be quick. I remember mm-hmm. Sam Harris once had a debate with Raza Aslan, right? And Raza Aslan basically contextually proved that Islam, like, you know, most of the violent verses were about treason and self-defense. You know, he'll strike off the heads of right. the unbelievers. It was basically treason. And to this day, America is one of the maximum punishments for treason in America is execution, right? And the rest of it is self-defense. And Sam Harris said, well, what about Buddhism? It's and Jainism. It's pacifist. And there are no terrorists that are Buddhist. Now we know that to be not true now with Myanmar and Sri Lanka and, and the rise of Buddhist extremism. But then what was interesting is that he then would have a member on his podcast and he would talk shit about pacifism. Now pacifism is garbage. So wait a minute, Sam. Why is pacifism stupid? Why is the right to defend yourself okay when it's you, but when Muslims are taught that they have a right to defend themselves, suddenly that is bad. They should get rid of that from the religion. And I just noticed there's a double standard for Muslims. Like, we're always held to a different standard. Like, if our religion is self-defense, say, wouldn't it be better if it did have that in it? Right? But then everyone else is allowed to follow the opposite. You know, Jordan B. Peterson supports I and her CLE. And then he says stuff that basically she supposedly is against. He says all sorts of things about how, like, like, he basically talks like a Yusuf, to be honest. He talks like a soft Muslim cleric, because it's a Muslim conservative. And, and there's a duality to Islam. Islam is treated to a different standard, let's be honest, you know? Okay, what, what were you saying, Shireen? I'm, I'm done. I just ran it way too no, much. No, and, and that, was, that was really it. I wanted to end up on that note. I know we can talk about so much more, and we can save that for another day. Uh, David, did you have any last thoughts? No, it's good. No. So thank you both for your time today. I think we went over, we're almost at an hour and a half. Um, but we will continue this again. And I think the next conversation we wanted to touch on, so if you don't jump in, yeah, don't jump in on it now. So we'll save that for another time, but it was about free speech. Okay, sorry. Uh, but we'll, we'll get into that another day. So thank you both, and we'll get this up soon.